Welcome to the Food for Your Soul podcast, where we apply the Word of God to the hearts of men and women to stoke the fires of your delight in Christ. Is God our Savior? Well, it depends on your definition of saving. A lot of things depend on your definition of saving. Being rescued basically means you're in trouble and God delivers you from that trouble, right? That's what saving is. But if your concept of trouble and your idea of what it means to be rescued or saved from that trouble don't line up with God's definitions of what trouble is and what rescuing is, then you're going to find yourself very disappointed with God And you might miss out on salvation altogether. We left off last time with Jesus crying out to God from the cross after the three hours of darkness in Mark 15, 33. It says, At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, and at the ninth hour, Jesus prayed out. Now these last few sessions, and I don't know if everybody has caught those. I've been putting them online, uh, trying to keep pace with so we can finish by Easter. But last few sessions, uh, we've looked at the... rich significance of that darkness, just that terrible, suffocating abyss that descended on Jesus. You know, sometimes people debate about whether Jesus went into hell after he died. Uh, I don't believe he did, but I do believe he went there before he died. Or he was there before he died. You don't have to go anywhere, really, to be in hell. All it takes is for God to turn the light of his face away from you. And that's what happened, I believe, in the last three hours on the cross, those dark hours. Instead of saying Jesus descended into hell, I would say hell descended onto Jesus. And after that happened, Jesus said, it is finished. So that means it was finished. You didn't have to go anywhere after that except for paradise. At the end of those three hours, Jesus shouted the opening line of Psalm 22. Verse 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we talked a lot last few times about what that meant, what he meant by that. Uh, but now let's take a look at how the people interpreted it, who were there at the cross. Verse 35, when some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine and vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. So Jesus says, Eli, an Aramaic, sounds vaguely like Elijah, and and immediately they start thinking about the promise in Malachi 4-5. That Sia will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. They believed that you know, one of their main hopes, you know, we look for the rapture and different things, and one of their biggest main hopes is Elijah coming back. And they believed uh, that that's what would validate the Messiah. That's how you know the guy that says he's a Messiah, is a Messiah, is if Elijah comes first. And so, what would Elijah do? If Elijah came now, if this really is a Messiah, and Elijah came now, what would Elijah do? Well, obviously, he would rescue Jesus from the trouble he's in. That was their concept of salvation. Salvation is very simple. We get in trouble, God gets us out of it. That's the long and short of what salvation meant to them and what it means to most people. 
for God to rescue me from what I perceive as trouble. So for someone to be taken seriously as a potential Messiah, you have to have that same mindset of what salvation means. You have to be a man who really knows how to get God to rescue him from trouble. So if Elijah doesn't come, then, well, we're all justified in rejecting this man as a fraud. Obviously, he can't be the Messiah. But if Elijah does come, well, that would be pretty cool to see, right? You can think. So this guy, verse 36, ran, filled the sponge with wine vinegar, it's a common drink for quenching thirst, put it on a stick, offered it to Jesus to drink, and said, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Now, maybe this guy's mocking Jesus along with the crowd, but in the back of his mind also kind of wondering. Like, who knows? I mean, we know the darkness had an impact on the people, right? And maybe this guy thinks, well, we got some supernatural things going on here. Uh, Jesus has done miracles. Could he be? Really? Not? Nah, can't be. But I don't know. What if? What if? Sure would be cool. See Elijah come. Whatever he was thinking, one thing is clear. They're convinced. That if, Eli, if Jesus really is the Messiah, God would rescue him from the cross. That's their idea of salvation, which is yet another example of how these people were focused on little life instead of big life. We've talked a lot about that, and that's been a big focus all through this. When Jesus said, if you save your life, you will lose it, this, uh, this, is the concept, this concept of salvation is exactly the kind of thing Jesus had in mind, by saving your life and then losing it thinking that this is what salvation means. Saving your little life. If your idea of being saved is preserving this little, immediate, right here and now life, you'll lose everything. That's what Jesus said. True salvation starts with giving up this little life. So you can see why this Elijah thing is important for Mark to include here with his, with his teaching. That's, what's the, that's the wrong way to think about Elijah. What's the right way to think about Elijah's role with the Messiah? Well, that's not hard to answer in Mark, because Mark's said a lot about Elijah in this book. The uh, most memorable, memorable passage is the Transfiguration, where Elijah actually showed up on scene, right? In person. Elijah and Moses appeared. And remember, Peter made that dopey comment about, oh, let's build three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Like, Jesus, you're so great. You're right up there with Moses and Elijah. We'll just put you in the same category. And uh, then God just, like, makes Elijah and Moses disappear. And Jesus is left. And then God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus is the eternal son of God who shares in God's glory. He says, this is my son whom I love. Jesus is beaming with divine glory that's coming right out of him, him and through his clothes. He's far greater than Elijah and Moses, and his word even supersedes the law and the prophets. That's why God says, listen to him, not Elijah and Moses above him, but him above all. The, the people at the cross thought it would be this huge sign of validation if Elijah were to appear and save Jesus. Maybe they would think that Jesus is actually somebody special. But the reader of Mark knows that's backwards, right? We've already seen what 
Jesus compared to Elijah. Elijah showing up wouldn't give Jesus legitimacy. Jesus is greater than Elijah. Jesus isn't dependent on Elijah's saving grace. Elijah is dependent on Jesus' saving grace. But what if Elijah had come at that moment? What if he just like floated out of the sky and dropped down on the scene and said, here I am, I'm here. Uh, what, 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 would, what would happen? What would they have done? Would they have dropped to their knees and repented? And said, oh, it turns out Jesus is, is for real. No, that wouldn't be what happened. Here's what would have happened. They would have just killed Elijah too. They would have just killed him. And the way I know that is because Elijah did come, and they did kill him. Uh, after the transfiguration, um, when the disciples were trying to figure out, how could Jesus be the Messiah if Elijah hasn't come yet? Because, you know, they believed this, that Elijah would come first. And so they asked, Mark 9, 11, they asked him, why do the teachers of law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wish, just as it is written about him. John the Baptist came in the role of Elijah. And what did they do? They rejected him, they mocked him, and then they killed him. Elijah's role was not to come and rescue the Messiah. He, the light, Elijah came to prepare the way for the Messiah. And one way he did that was by showing what would happen to the Messiah by suffering the very things that Jesus would eventually suffer. He was rejected, unjustly accused, and put to death, laying down the pattern that the Messiah would take. So, very different ideas of salvation, right? Their idea of Elijah and salvation and, and the real idea. So, so their idea is simplistic. It's focused on this little life here and now. We get in trouble. God gets us out of it. And their definition of trouble is basically Rome, right? Rome. That's the problem. The Messiah's job is to deliver us from Rome. And God says, I'll send the Messiah to rescue you from trouble. I'll send him to rescue you from trouble. But the trouble you're in is infinitely worse than a political, military trouble. The trouble you're in is enslavement to sin, your rebellion against God, the fact that you're rocketing towards eternal wrath and punishment, and the way of salvation will be for me to take the Messiah, for the Messiah to take upon himself all your guilt and die in your place as a sacrifice in misery and disgrace. That's the plan of salvation. Well, anyway, the guy with the vinegar has got his experiment all set up. So he, he gets he, he gets Jesus revived, he gives him the drink, and then he says, nah, verse 36, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes, take it back. And you know he's like, I, I gave him the drink, I got him revived, he's awake, he's alert, let's just watch and see. And he gets his big bowl of popcorn, and he sits back, and he looks up at Jesus, and Jesus immediately dies. <laughs> Verse 36, let's see the light that goes, take it down. He said, with a, loud, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. So before this guy gets his first handful of popcorn in his mouth, Jesus is already dead. We know Jesus chose the moment he was going to die. When they came up with this stupid Elijah idea, Jesus can't die fast enough. Right? He's just like, I'm going to give zero chance for anybody to think that I'm even a little bit open to this this wait for Elijah scheme. I don't want anyone to think I'm on board with that. And so as soon as they come over, it's like, all right, I'm done. Boom, he's dead. 
Verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Actually, the word last isn't in the Greek there. Literally, it's just he breathed out. It's like our word expire. It's just a natural euphemism for dying. And it's loud. Uh, the other Gospels tell us what Jesus said at this moment, but not Mark. Mark wants our attention not on what he said, but just on the volume. And grammatically, the act of shouting is the death itself. It, it's the death. So it's not that he shouts and then a moment later dies. His death manifests itself as a strong shout. And by telling it that way, Mark is showing us that Jesus' death was yet another display of his mighty power. Even the release of his spirit was awesome. Normally when somebody died on a cross, it was a very, very slow death, sometimes less than a day, it took days to happen. At some point they would just go unconscious and eventually die of exhaustion or asphyxiation. They got, they were, they got too weak to push up on the nails and get another breath, and then they just choke out. Not Jesus. Jesus goes right from full consciousness to being dead. And even in his last moment, he had plenty of wind. He doesn't croak out a last little whisper. He just belts out this thunderous shout. And he made it obvious by doing that that he is voluntarily and deliberately dying. John 10, 17, he said it. I lay down my life, no, uh, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Jesus' authority is a big theme. Remember the beginning of Mark, the beginning chapters, uh, where the people marveled at his authority over demons, and they marveled at his authoritative preaching. He teaches with authority, not like the teachers of the law. And they were amazed at his authority over disease. He had authority over the wind and the waves and storm. Jesus was a man of awesome authority. He had authority to forgive sins on earth. He was a man of awesome authority. And here we see he even died authoritatively. Almost like he had to give death the order to take him in order for him to die. So Jesus died, not with a pathetic whimper, but with a powerful roar. How powerful was that roar? When the lion of the tribe of Judah roared, what happened? Well, nothing much. Just the destruction of the temple and the capture of the death squad commander on scene. That's what Mark describes. The next two verses are placed as a clear result of his dying. Let's take them one at a time. First, the temple. Mark, Mark 15, 38. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I'd say that's pretty significant. That's, uh, uh, remember the final section of Psalm 22, section 3 of Psalm 22, uh, where even though he feels forsaken by God, in the beginning of the psalm, by verse 24, he says, God has not hidden his face, uh, section 2, God has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry. When Jesus cried out, God listened. He didn't forsake him. He listened, and he responded. Not by sending Elijah to get him off the cross, but by destroying the barrier that closed off the Holy of Holies in the temple. That's what that curtain was for. Very substantial curtain. It was like a wall. It was really thick. 
and really tall, 80 feet plus. Uh, more evidence that God did not forsake Jesus. And I don't know about you, but that's... I have never had God respond in that dramatic a fashion to one of my prayers. Uh, 80 foot tall curtain being torn from top to bottom. And God wants to make it clear that it's Him doing the tearing, and so it's top to bottom. I don't think there was any disciple that was 80 feet tall. So this was God. Temple Insurance Company would have just classified this as an act of God, for sure. And it's clear that Mark wants us to see this as a direct response to Jesus' cry and his death because it's uh, it's such an intrusion into the story. It's uh, not even on the scene there. This whole event has been taking place at Golgotha, outside the city wall. And Mark suddenly jumps inside the city walls, inside the temple, right by the Holy of Holies, and then the very next sentence, we're right back on the scene at Golgotha at the cross. He like just jumps away and then right back. The fact that Mark just shoehorns this report of the curtain right in here between Jesus' death and the centurion's response shows he wants us to know this is a direct, immediate response to Jesus' death. This is God's commentary on the cross. He's not leaving it uninterpreted. Jesus accomplished a lot of things on the cross. Like the whole New Testament tells you there's just a ton of stuff he did on the cross. But if you want to simplify it, boil it down to its most basic, most essential meaning, the cross, this is it. That curtain being torn. But why the temple? Why would God vandalize his own temple? Well, for one, it was to show that the temple was now officially obsolete. Now that the one true sacrifice had been offered, there's no place for any animal sacrifices anymore. And that building is no longer God's dwelling place, and it's no longer the, the way to approach the presence of God. Because now there's a new temple, a new holy place. In the trial, remember they falsely accused Jesus of, uh, he said he was going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Actually, when they did that, they were half right. He didn't destroy it by tearing it down. But he did destroy it. He did destroy it. He destroyed it by rendering it obsolete. The purpose of that temple, or that curtain, like I said, was to block access to the Holy of Holies, the dwelling place of God. No one could enter the Holy of Holies without dropping dead. So you got the whole temple complex, then you got the holy place uh, where the temple, where this priest suffered, the sacrifice and all that stuff, but then that center of the whole thing, that box, that room, that was the perfect cube, God's dwelling place was there, and nobody could go in there, or you'd be, you'd be killed. There was no direct access to God. And when Jesus died, and God just shredded that curtain, <laughs> that's pretty clear. God saying, that thing that just happened on the tree up there outside the walls just opened up direct access to my presence. In, in his death, Jesus blew the doors to God wide open. That's what this means. And I love the way Mark says it. It's different than the other Gospels. You know, Mark is all about bookends, right? He's got so many bookends, especially chapter 1 and, and this chapter. Um, lots and lots of them. I'll go through them all, but, but uh, Elijah is one of those. Chapter 1, and we just saw here, Son of God, Son of God. Um, and tearing open access to God is in chapter 1 and in this chapter. The only other time Mark uses this word for tearing 
is at Jesus' baptism in chapter 1. You remember in chapter 1, verse 10, as Jesus is coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn off. Same word. Only other time with Jews in Mark. Now, what, you remember the I'm sure you remember the significance. All you have to do is think back to when we covered it in 2017. <laughs> uh, but in case you don't remember, let me just remind you. Uh, we, we found Mark was using the language when he said that, about the heavens being torn open. He's using the language of Isaiah 64, 1, which says, Oh, that you would tear the heavens and come down. That prayer. Remember, the people of Isaiah's time were so desperate for God to rescue them. They were in so much immediate trouble that they begged God, rip the heavens apart and get down here. That's what they're asking him to do. You, you kind of picture a father who, he sees a bully uh, pounding on his kid. He's so adamant to get out there, he just runs through the screen door instead of opening it. That's the idea. Just, the only thing between us and you is the heavens, rip them apart. Just rip apart whatever's between us, God. Get down here. The beginning of Jesus' ministry was God ripping apart that which separated us and him. Right after God ripped open the heavens, what did he say to Jesus? He ripped them open and he said, this is my son. Okay? What's the first thing after the curtain of the temple is ripped open? Centurion says, surely this is the son of God. Again, bookends, and just another clue that Mark wants us to make this link between the two rippings. And here's what here's why I think this is so striking. God ripped open the heavens, not for us to go up, but for him to come down. Right? And Mark is laying out the curtain thing in those same terms, same terminology. See, I've always assumed that the ripping of the curtain it was it was opened up to open up access for us to be able to approach God in the Holy of Holies. But by casting it in this language, the same language as the tearing of the heavens, chapter one, that gives it a little different slant. It wasn't just opening us access for us to come in. The violent ripping of the curtain was God bursting out of the Holy of Holies to come save us, just like He ripped through the heavens to come down. Just like the dad bursts through the screen door to go out and save his kid. God breaks through the barrier from the inside of the Holy of Holies, that barrier, and runs to us. Just like the prodigal running to the, the father running to the prodigal to embrace his beloved son. Now, it's still perfectly accurate to say that the tearing of that temple opened up access for us to approach God. That's the way the book of Hebrews describes it. That's a perfectly legitimate way to think of it. That's the primary way we should think of it. But Mark adds this little extra idea. He wants us to see God carry his way out to get to us, to rescue us. Don't ever think of the gospel as just a mere offer, like a TV commercial. It's a limited time offer. If you hear a limited time offer in a TV commercial, that puts 100% of the responsibility on you to go and claim that offer if you want it. And there's one sense in which the gospel is like that. It is an offer to which we must respond. That's true. That's totally true. But it's only half the story. The other half is God is bursting out to run after us, to pursue us. God comes after us. Whenever we take the initiative to go seek after God, to approach God, we always discover that it was we did that because he first sought us. 
started with the heavens being torn open, it ends with the curtain being torn open, from beginning to end, the work of Christ is all about ripping to shreds that which stands between us and God. And when you look at it that way, then you understand the next verse. These aren't random things that happen at the cross. What's the first thing that happens when God bursts out of the Holy of Holies to save people? What's the very first thing that happens? Verse 39. Then the centurion, right back to Golgotha now, then the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he breathed his last. He said, surely this man was the Son of God. God went straight from the Holy of Holies right out to Golgotha and immediately claimed that centurion's heart for himself. Now, most i got to tell you, most commentators would argue with me on that. Uh, they insist, and most preachers that I heard would insist, that the centurion wasn't really converted. He, 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 wouldn't have, he wouldn't have meant son of God in the Jewish sense, in the same way we understand it. Uh, he would have meant it in the pagan way. He would have meant Son of God in the same way they called Caesar the Son of God. Uh, but especially powerful, divine man. Anytime somebody was a real conqueror, um, they, they, you know, the Romans would assign this divine man status to him, Son of God, uh, just a minute in the pagan, not in the Jewish way, in the pagan way. Just somebody who's especially powerful and significant uh, and magnificent. This soldier was a Roman, must have had a pagan mindset. He would have meant this in the pagan sense, not in the Jewish. That's the consensus of uh, most of the papers. <coughs> well, we should turn that off, huh? <laughs> All right. So, so. Uh, he would, have, he would have meant it in the, the pagan sense, not in the messianic sense. What is the messianic sense? What does the Old Testament teach about Son of God? What would the people have thought of when they thought, oh, a Son of God? Well, in second, I, I'll, I won't give you the whole picture of the Old Testament, but in 2 Samuel 7, God made a covenant with David, promising that one of David's descendants would be God's unique son. In 2 Samuel 7, 14, I will be his father, and he will be my son. And that Son of God would be more than just a human king like David was. He would share God's sovereign throne and reign over the whole world forever. And he's even to be worshipped right alongside the Father. Psalm 2 talks about the relationship between the Father and his coming messianic son, who's the unique son of God. And in verse 6, it says, I have installed my king on Zion. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. I will make the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them. Therefore, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and he be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So the son of God will share God's throne and receive worship right alongside God the Father. That's why in Jesus' trial before the Jews, you remember the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Are you like the, the, the Psalm 2, 2 Samuel 7, Son of God? Is that you? And he says, yes, and they freak out and, and condemn him for blasphemy. That's the Old Testament picture. And one other important feature that Mark emphasizes 
is the fact that Jesus was God's unique, firstborn, beloved son. Both times when God speaks from heaven in Mark, he says, you are my son whom I love, or this is my son whom I love. My son whom I love. My son whom I love is a direct quote. It's a direct reference to Abraham and Isaac. Genesis 2.22. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him. Okay? That's, what it, that's the reference. When God is saying, this is my son whom I love. He's saying, this is my Isaac. This is my Isaac. And now, at this final affirmation of God as uh, Jesus as the Son of God, we actually see the Isaac drama finally played out, right? For a couple thousand years, that image of Abraham raising the knife above his son, who's tied up, ready to plunge it into the chest of his son, on the assumption that, well, God's still going to fulfill his promise through Isaac, so he's just going to have to raise Isaac from the dead, I guess. And then only stopping at the last second when God stopped him and provided a substitute sacrifice, that ram. For 2,000 years, that image had been pointing people forward to some greater fulfillment. And finally, right here at Golgotha, the fulfillment happens. God the Father takes his beloved son, his Isaac, binds him up, raises the knife. But this time, nothing st stops him. The knife plunges in. The blade comes down. The beloved firstborn breathes his last. Jesus played the role both of Isaac and the ram. And by the way, do you remember where that happened? That whole Isaac Abraham event with where he took him up on Mount Moriah? He said, Mount Moriah? Where's Mount Moriah? What's the new name for Mount Moriah? Jerusalem. Same spot. God sacrificed his beloved son, same site where he called Abraham to sacrifice his. And that's the Jewish concept of the Son of God, okay? That's what I mean by the Jewish concept. And we're told, oh, there's no way a centurion could have understood all that. And so we shouldn't think of this as a genuine conversion. He just meant Son of God in the pagan divine man sense. Here's why I strongly disagree with that. The Romans would not call somebody a son of God or a divine man unless they rose to the level of like Caesar, at least, right? Strong, majestic, feared by all, powerful, magnificent, glorious, dying a shameful, humiliating death on a cross as a crucifixion, as a public laughing stock, would be a 100% proof that somebody was not a son of God in the Roman sense. Total disqualification from being a Caesar type. Right? So, I don't think that's what he's thinking. Secondly, he doesn't say, this is a son of God. He says, this is the son of God. The son. One, unique son of God. Third, why would we assume that a centurion living in first century Jerusalem couldn't have understood the Jewish concept of Son of God. He knew, well, I guarantee he knew more about Jewish culture in the first century than any scholar alive today. He lived there. 
And beyond that, he's in charge of... So the way they did it, they had a squad of four guys that would crucify, four soldiers would crucify, and a centurion in charge. He's in charge of crucifying a man who was convicted of the crime of claiming to be what? The Son of God in the Jewish sense. That was the crime that they turned Jesus over to the Romans for. Mark 16, 14, 61. Are you the Son of the Blessed Lord? I am, said Jesus, and they all condemned him as worthy of death. Is it such a leap to assume that the centurion would be aware of the charges leveled against the man that he was executing? Is that like far-fetched? Am I crazy to think that when a man is executed for claiming to be the Son of God, and an executioner stands up and says, sure, this man was the Son of God, he might have meant it in the same sense? So those are my little reasons for re rejecting this idea. Now let me give you the big compelling reasons. Big reason number one. Jesus as the Son of God is a massive theme in Mark. According to Mark, it's the theme. It's the, it's the point of his book. You get that from verse 1. You want the summary of the book of Mark? You want Mark's summary of the book of Mark? Here it is. Mark 1.1. 1, 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay? That's what the book is about. He tells us that in the very first line. And it's the main feature at the climax of the book. Remember in the center, the climax, what happened? Transfiguration. God speaks from heaven and says, this is my son. Listen to him. And now here it is again at the end of the book. Beginning, middle, end. And many other places in between as well. Twice, God speaks from heaven, calls Jesus son. The demons say it over and over. You're the son of God. You're the son of God. They keep saying that. Jesus refers to himself that way in the parable of the vineyard and at his trial. He affirms it. When, when he wouldn't uh, respond to anything else at his trial, that he, they, he just kept silent, kept silent, kept silent, and then they say, Are you the son of God? Yep. And he speaks up. So we think that after all that building and building and building this theme, the Son of God theme through the entire gospel, Mark would have the final closing reference at the very front of the cross to something that carried an entirely different meaning? I don't think so. That strikes me as incredibly far-fetched. And what Mark implies, Luke just comes right out of states in his account, Luke 23, 47, the centurion, seeing what happened, glorified God. Wouldn't glorify God to say Jesus was some kind of pagan, deified man. So that's big reason number one. Big reason number two, why I reject this idea. It happens, this happens immediately after God rips open the curtain to the Holy of Holies. Jesus blows the doors to God wide open, and the very next line, a Gentile soldier confesses the central truth of the whole gospel, that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And we're going to say, oh, there's no way he could have meant that uh, God actually reached this man's heart after busting out of the Holy of Holies. <laughs> How would we assume that? You know when the scholars say he couldn't have been converted? Because... After all, he's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. He just, you know. When they say that, I just want to ask them, is it possible in our day and age for a Gentile to be converted? Is that possible? Well, I know it's possible because I'm a Gentile and I'm converted. And they say, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> but that's because somebody told you. Told me what? Told you about the cross. Oh. 
Oh, I can make a murder because somebody told me what the cross? The centurion was at the cross. He was there. He saw it. Nobody told him about it. He saw it. If I could be saved just by hearing about it, couldn't he be saved by actually witnessing it? It's, it's crazy to say that this can't be a real conversion because he was a pagan. Real conversions of pagans is the whole point. Jesus has been talking about reaching the Gentiles all along. Mark is showing us this. This is why I'm getting worked up here. Mark showing us that this is how powerful the death of Jesus was. Remember, now, section 3 of Psalm 22, verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down to him. That's how that psalm, Jesus quoted verse 1 of that psalm, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? They refer to the psalm again and again all through the crucifixion account. Their point is to this psalm, the climax of that psalm is, the Gentiles will bow the knee of Christ. Jesus quoted that psalm the moment before he died. The moment after he died, Mark shows us a Gentile doing this very thing, confessing him as the Son of God. Can we not put two and two together? When we say a man couldn't have been converted just by witnessing the cross, we're doubting the power of the cross, which is understandable. It is. It's understandable. The cross is foolishness to the human mind. It really is. Humanly speaking, it makes no sense. It seems impossible that the message of the cross would ever transform anybody in any meaningful way. A guy dying on a cross. I mean, a man being crucified. That's our amazing message. What kind of message is that? Somebody was executed on a cross along with thousands of others. It doesn't seem like it has any power behind it. It's hard for you to think that soldier could have been converted just by standing there and watching Jesus die. Doesn't he need a little more than that? That's natural human thinking. That's why so many churches today abandon the preaching of the gospel and the cross and use all kinds of other methods for reaching people. Concerts, 12-step recovery programs, community service, doing whatever we can do to make people like us and uh, be moved by our kindness so that they'll bow the knee to Christ. Uh, we argue with them online or we pass legislation or whatever and, and all this other but over and over and over the New Testament we're told the power is not in any of those methods the power is in the gospel and at the core of the gospel is the cross that's where the power is it takes supernatural divine power to transform a human heart and the key to unlock that supernatural divine power from God is to show people a clear picture of the cross. To show them what that centurion saw. That's the only thing that has the power to change dead hearts and bring them to life. Of course this was a true conversion. Mark is showing us how conversion happened. They happen when people see the cross. You have all kinds of clever ideas of how to win people, but the best way is to preach the cross and then get out of the way. This centurion had no idea that he was the first of millions and millions of other Gentiles who would make this same confession about Jesus. There were dozens of messianic movements around the time of Jesus, 
And in every case, every single one of those movements, when the leader died, the movement died with him. Only one of those messianic movements didn't completely collapse when the leader died. In fact, not only did it not collapse, it exploded. Christianity, 300, within 300 years, it spread throughout the entire world. This is a climactic moment in Mark's Gospel because after building and building and building this theme of Son of God, this is the first human character. You realize this is the first human character? All the references we've had to Son of God in Mark. This is the first actual human character in the book that gets it, other than Jesus himself. He's the first guy. Demons get it over and over. God gets it. Jesus affirms it. But only now, after Jesus dies, is it affirmed by a, a, a human character finally sees it. You know, the readers of Mark can get really frustrated with what scholars call the messianic secret. No doubt, some of you are a little frustrated all these times study, all through this study, all through the gospel. Jesus does some amazing thing and keeps telling people, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody about me. Don't tell anybody who I am. And that just like grates on us. We're like, we're not used to that. <laughs> don't tell people about Jesus, right? Uh, but right here now at the foot of the cross, the veil of the messianic secret is lifted. The secret is out. The reason Jesus kept saying, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody, is because if they tried to tell somebody about Jesus without understanding the cross, they would get it wrong. Even the disciples, they would get it wrong. The fact that no one ever has eyes uh, to, to open to see Jesus as the Son of God until after the moment he dies, Mark is showing us that his identity is inextricably linked to his death. You don't understand Jesus if you don't understand the cross. And again, the fact that this is a Gentile and a really unlikely candidate, let's face it, unlikely candidate to be the first one to recognize Jesus as Son of God, is the whole point. He's showing us the power of the cross. It has more power than you can imagine. The moment Jesus died, the barrier between God and man is ripped apart and a piece of garbage Gentile who just mocked and murdered Jesus the leader of the death squad is given eyes to see and understands and confesses more clearly than any other person in the entire Gospel of Mark. We shouldn't doubt his conversion. We should marvel at the power of the cross. If it seems unlikely, the more unlikely it seems, the more we should marvel at the power of the cross. Every Roman coin in circulation at the time had affirmed God, Caesar, as the Son of God. Caesar, Son of God. When this centurion confesses Jesus as the Son of God, that is a very big deal. He's switching his first allegiance from Caesar to this man hanging on a cross. Maybe you're reluctant to share the gospel with certain people because, oh, the person is so hardened and so uninterested, they'll never be interested. It'd be a waste of time, waste of breath to share the gospel with them. I don't think you can get much more uninterested in following Jesus than this, this centurion was. I mean, if you had been there, if you would you in the palace, would you if you saw this pagan savage torturing Jesus, laughing about it, smacking him on the head with his own scepter, and 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 uh, thinking it was just a big joke and torturing. Would you have seen that and say, you know, this looks like a high prospect? 
And it'll share the gospel. I'm going to see if I can get, can get this guy to confess that this man he's killing is the son of God. I don't think I would have. <laughs> if you're reluctant to share the gospel with someone because he's an unlikely prospect, remember this centurion. God showed us the whole Elijah thing to make the point of what they should have been looking for. They were looking for the wrong thing. It's Elijah. What's the right thing? What should they have been looking for? Well, Mark shows us. He's saying, this is God's idea of salvation. Here's God's idea. Jesus dying on a cross and winning Gentile hearts. But why this Gentile? Because not everybody at the cross had this reaction, right? A lot of people witnessed the cross. Why this centurion? What's different about him? I mean, was there some brilliant argument made by a disciple that really won him over? Or did this centurion receive special blessings from God that warmed his heart? He says, oh yeah, I get it. No, no, none of that. What does the text say? Verse 39. says, And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he breathed his last, he said, surely this man was a son of God. He stood in front of Jesus. And Mark is very deliberate, uh, literally opposite Jesus and saw how he died. He's opposite Jesus, not off to the side, not at an angle, and not looking away, standing directly opposite Jesus, facing him. Point is, he watched carefully. He looked and looked and looked and looked, and finally, right after Jesus breathed his last, he saw. He saw past this bloody, mutilated body and saw the most amazing thing he had ever seen. There before him, within arm's reach, was the Son of God. What opened his eyes? Mark says it was the, when he saw the way Jesus breathed his last. Now this man, I don't know if you've ever been around somebody when they breathe their, breathe their last breath. Maybe you have, one or two, three, maybe. This guy had been around Hundreds. He'd seen it hundreds, if not thousands of times. He'd seen people die, but no one ever like this. Never seen anyone die like Jesus died. He saw the weakness and the humility and the meekness of Christ in his death. He saw the total willing surrender to the Father. Your will be done. He saw his love for the very ones murdering him and torturing him. He saw Jesus following the path that he had preached giving up this little life in favor of big life, caring more about the kingdom of God than any human kingdom, seeing a man of such power and authority voluntarily and deliberately giving up his life like Jesus, seeing that opened the centurion's eyes to see who Jesus really is. No other religion is like, no other religion has a God who suffers, actually cries out in suffering. There's nothing else like this. So here's a trivia question you can use to stump your friends. Who was the first person to see inside the Holy of Holies after the curtain was torn? Answer? Listen to me. Listen to me. You say, wait, I thought the centurion couldn't see inside Jerusalem, inside the temple. So he couldn't. 
He was out there at Golgotha. He couldn't see inside the temple building, but the moment that curtain was torn, the Holy of Holies was no longer in the temple building. It was on that cross. The Holy of Holies room in the temple, it was actually, in the time of Jesus, an empty room. Did you know that? They didn't have the ark. The ark was lost when the first temple was destroyed, and, and they never got it back. So that, that Holy of Holies was just an empty room. On the day of the atonement, when the high priest was supposed to sprinkle the go in the holy holies and sprinkle the blood on the cover, the atonement cover, the, the cover of the ark of the covenant, uh, mercy seat. Uh, they didn't have a mercy seat. There was no atonement cover. He just sprinkled. They just sprinkled it on the floor, on the rock that was there. And but nobody ever really saw the emptiness of that room. When this curtain is open, they the emptiness of that room became obvious to everyone, and the physical emptiness now became emblematic of the spiritual emptiness. The presence of God was no longer there. But there, did you know there is a mercy seat? There is an atonement cover, a cover to the ark. That word for atonement cover, or mercy seat, is in Romans three twenty five. God presented Jesus Christ as a mercy seat, or atonement cover, through faith in His blood. The moment Jesus died, the new Holy of Holies, the new Ark of the Covenant, the new dwelling place of God, the new, the new atonement cover was Jesus. He was the new temple. He was the new dwelling place of God. The only place where man could approach God in worship. The new altar. The entire sacrificial system. All of it. It's Jesus. That centurion faced Jesus and looked up, looked until he saw right into the new Holy of Holies. And he saw Jesus as the Son of God. This centurion statement is loaded with theology. He doesn't just say he was the Son of God. He said this man, Anthropos, was the Son of God. There are two, one person, two natures, divine nature, human nature. Uh, we, can, we can say a lot about that, I won't, but the story is right on, except for one word. There's one word in this sentence a little off. It's the word was. Would be more proper to say, surely this man is the Son of God, right? Not was. He got it a little wrong. Aren't you glad you don't have to have flawless theology to know God? <laughs> you can have an imperfect profession of faith as long as you have what? Faith. Right? And another thing we can learn from this, not only do you have, uh, can you have imperfect faith, you can also have a horrific past. Some of you might maybe feel hamstrung by a constant cloud of guilt because of your past. You can't imagine how God could fully forgive you for what you've done. You just damaged yourself beyond repair, it feels like. I don't know what you did, but I'm guessing I can't hold a candle to what this centurion had just done, right? I'm guessing you didn't mock Jesus, torture him to within an inch of his life, and then murder him and think it was funny. When that centurion mocked Jesus and said, if you're the Son of God, why don't you save yourself? Or call Elijah to save you. Jesus' answer was, I'm not the one that needs saving. You are. And he said, so, back to our question from the beginning. Is Jesus your Savior? 
Will he deliver you from your troubles? He will deliver you from your troubles only when you define, you let him define what trouble means and what deliver means. And that will happen when you gaze so intently at him that you see who he really is. You look and look and look until you see. Father, that's what we want to do. We want to, we want to gaze upon our Savior and really see. Really see. See past what the natural mind conceives of. See with the eyes of faith. See in a way that transforms us. Lord, uh, I pray that you would call to our mind all, all the study of Mark that we've done over these years. You would keep calling to our, re-bringing re, uh, to our th- thoughts the glory of your Son, that we might really understand who he is. We ask it in his holy name. Were they actually still doing sacrifices at that time? Yes. The question is, were they still doing sacrifices and were they going into the Holy Home? We know they're doing sacrifices because just a few, ver- just in the same chapter, it says, um, uh, when it was, on the day that it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus told his disciples, go find a place for us to have the Passover. So there's a reference to sacrificing the Passover lamb just right in this very chapter. Um, so yeah, they were, there was, Thousands and thousands and thousands of lambs being slain right at this very time this is happening. Um, uh, so, so the way that the sacrificial system worked was you would bring your gift, your animal, and bring it as far as the court of the priests, and you would hand it off to the priests. The priests would take it from there, and the altar was in the priest's court of the priests, that holy place, uh, and they would put it on the altar for you. Um, and so that was going on. But None of the priests could even go inside the Holy of Holies, um, except for once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in there in a special ritual on the, on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle blood on the, um, the mercy seat it, when it was there, and then in the second temple, in the Jesus temple that was uh, just on the floor. Uh, and they were doing that. They did that once a year, right up to the time, uh, right up to this time. Well, they were allowed to do it by God's command. So they um, okay. uh, they could go in there on the Day of Atonement in order to do that. But that, that was that was it. Even the other three hundred sixty four days, not even the high priest could go in. Oh, what happened? The darkness, the period of darkness ended um, just before Jesus cried out, because it says. Um, or at the same moment, because it says darkness came at the sixth hour, which is noon. Darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out. So I was just thinking that the centurions would have been. I mean, I would think everybody is like he cried out. It's finished, dies, and there's light. And there's light back again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The fact the light came back. I mean, we know that that whole darkness three-hour darkness thing rattled the people. We saw that in Luke. So, um, yeah, that uh, that no doubt had an impact. Yeah. Do we know what... Do you put any significance to the number of three? Three hours? 
Um, well, the, is there significance to the three hours? Um, yeah, I think the main significance of the three hours is it correlates, it's a hyperlink back to the three days of darkness in the in the Exodus. Mm -hmm. So because the Exodus, darkness came over the whole land for three days. And then here, darkness came over the whole land for three hours. So that's the main thing is to make us think back and interpret the darkness in the in the light of the Exodus darkness. Um, another point of significance is Mark divides up this whole day into three-hour segments, the whole day of the crucifixion, which is unusual because Mark never refers to the time of day anywhere in his whole gospel, and now, in this day, he keeps telling us what time it is all through. It's the oh, sunrise, it's the third hour, it's the sixth hour, it's the ninth hour, it's sunset. You know, and, um, uh, the way they did time back then was uh, every day was 12, from sunrise to sunset was always 12 hours, always. Winter, summer, that's 12 hours. So sunrise was zero, sunset was 12, noon was six. Uh, they took that period, however long it was, in the wintertime it's really short, right? They would take that period and divide it up into 12 equal segments that they called hours. So an hour in the summer was a lot longer than an hour in the winter, but it's always 12 hours a day. And it's always six hour, noon is always the sixth hour. You know? middle of the day it's always six hours so um, so so Mark divides it up into quarters like a basketball game uh, and I think part of that is to help us conceptualize all these events and I probably talk about this next time but just just to help you think it through first quarter of the game you have the trials all the stuff that happened before Jesus they nailed Jesus up on the cross right the torture and everything else second quarter is the first three hours on the cross where they're mocking Jesus. Third quarter, the last three hours on the cross where God has his say and he makes it go black. Fourth quarter, uh, at the end of the third quarter, we had this stuff we've been talking about where the centurion and the curtain and the centurion that happens right at the end of the third quarter. Fourth quarter will be his burial, and we'll cover that next time. And then the game goes into overtime and he, there's a resurrection. <laughs> But yeah, I think he divides it into even, and that's not even to say that these things had to exactly happen right at 9 o'clock, right at 12 o'clock, right at 3 o'clock. Uh, some people have even said that, uh, like I think Calvin said that sometimes they referred to the third hour as that segment between the third and the sixth, and the sixth hour was called that segment between the sixth and the ninth, and, and you know, so we, don't, I, we, we can't say for sure that these are simply precise, they didn't even have watches you know so um uh, but mark puts it in these precise segments so that we can think in these quarters you know and it helps just kind of conceptualize what's going on yeah so um jesus as a unique son of god means that there's no one else who's a son of god in the same sense that jesus is so like adam is called a son of god right um the the um, spiritual beings in Genesis 6 who sinned with the women on earth were called sons of God. So there's other references to sons of God in the sense that they were directly created by God. They didn't have some intermediate father. But um, when Jesus is the son of God, 
he's a son of God in a unique sense, in the sense that no one else is that same is a son of God in that same way. And the the thing that's most unique about it is the way that he loves him, his beloved son. And so we're children of God and loved by God only in as much as we're in Christ. And that's why God loves us so much is because we're in Christ, we're associated with Christ. That makes sense? Or did he drink of the fruit of the vine? Yeah. I think uh, the way I take that is it seems to me the fruit of the vine, there's two possibilities. One is... Um, that in a sense he's already entering into the kingdom after because he's already paid the whole price because he's gone through the whole ordeal of the cross and he's just dying. I I think more likely um, when he says I won't drink the fruit of the vine again, uh, he's talking about that whole kind of celebratory sense of uh, of feasting and wine and you know all that. Um, that's not going to happen until it, until the kingdom comes. But what happened with this sour wine mixed drinks thing that just quenched his thirst momentarily was hardly uh, would hardly fit the description of what the kind of thing he had he was describing when, at the Last Supper when they're having a big meal and special cups of wine and everything like that. Um, so I think the him turning down the wine mixed with myrrh was showed him following through on that statement. I'm not going to, you know. Have this special celebratory kind of beverage, but um, just the common drink that the soldiers would have had there evidently wasn't the same thing he had in mind. Yeah. So. Yeah. I. I so had the, first question: Had the kingdom of God come? Answer: Yeah. Kingdom of God came in one sense when Jesus arrived on Earth, um, and the kingdom of God was in their midst during his ministry. So there's a sense in which the kingdom of God was very much there greater sense in which the kingdom of God came when he died and rose again, uh, even greater sense when he ascended, and greater yet at the second coming. So um, so that's the easy thing, is that, yeah, you can always kind of say the kingdom of God is here. But I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind, because he said, when I, when he says, I won't drink the fruit of the vine again until I drink it in a new way. I don't think that sponge on the cross was a new way. Uh, that he had in mind. I guess it wasn't a new way, but I think that's what he had in mind. Um, I think he was talking about, it was something that was so glorious that it made them go from deep sorrow to singing. Right? Um, so I think he's talking about uh, something that's still future. Um, uh, or maybe in heaven now. But something joyful, something glorious. Um, no, they didn't. They would call. They'd use the same word for new wine and fermented wine, and um, there was. Uh, uh, they they would call that if some if they had fresh grape juice, they would call it that. They actually did have ways of preserving grape juice so that it didn't go sour immediately, like we would expect it to if, if you didn't have a refrigerator. Um, they had ways of preserving it, um, and also when they had wine. Um, they used wine as a beverage for hydration, and so um, it was mixed with water. And there was different strengths that they would mix it. Sometimes three to one, sometimes ten to one, sometimes twenty to one. And so um, there's actually some negative things said in ancient history by secular people about straight wine, you know, unmixed, 
why scripture uses that unmixed imagery to talk about something very very severe God's wrath is poured unmixed you know um, so uh, so the, and they didn't really quite have the technology we have in making wine so the alcohol content you, you wouldn't assume that every single time the Bible refers to wine it would be the same alcohol content as if you just went down to the grocery store and bought Bottle yeah, you buy the grocery store? I really love grape juice, but I really don't like wine, so it's like, okay. I, you have to choke down wine in heaven, that'd be rough. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel the same way. <laughs> or maybe God will open my eyes and I'll finally understand the secrecy and that stuff. I think the latter probably. That'd be the latter. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably really high, high quality, so it probably tastes People keep telling me the quality, if you get better wine and it actually tastes good, I'm still waiting to get that quality, <laughs> quality but uh, I'm not really worried about it. Well, when I went first in the military, I always had this idea, Gail and I were, that, well, we went in the military fairly early, and I always had this idea of good wine, you know, have some wine and a good dog and a pipe. <laughs> and, and of course we had no money, so it was a two dollar bottle of wine, which one sip and it went down the sink. Yeah. The dog went out right outside and two dollar dog's even worse. <laughs> did you know, did its business, then turned around and ate it, like, okay, the dog's gone. And the pipe I can never get the stupid thing to lie. So. <laughs> so that's what happens when you try to be the source of your own yeah, okay, I will say this. Drinking uh, is a source of tremendous pleasure, right? Um, now, for me, it's actually Dr. Pepper that brings the pleasure and not wine. But, um, but yeah, there are certain drinks. I mean, the, the way a drink can hit the spot and the amount of pleasure, the amount of, just think of the money that people spend on drink. And, um, and especially wine. Wine is so um, pleasurable to some people that they destroy themselves with it because they can't stop drinking it. So, so there's just tremendous potential pleasure associated with drink. Thank you for listening. We pray these principles from the Word of God are helping you find the peace of God as you draw near to the God of peace. Please remember to pray for this ministry and remember that we're a crowd-funded ministry so every gift helps. Just go to treasuringgod.com Until next time, rejoice in the Lord always and set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God.